Okay, let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you so much for the Sabbath day and for the chance we have of spending time uh, discussing a very important topic in Scripture. We pray that you will be with us and guide us as we discuss. We pray that uh, you will be with Yekaterina's uh, requests for classes, for homework, and that you will help her to get caught up and help her to do well in her classes. And I pray that you'll be with uh, her friend that she's praying for as well. I pray that you'll be with Tara as she makes a very important decision about next year. I pray that you'll give her wisdom and guidance and help her to know in her mind what is best. Bless us now as we study your word. May your spirit guide us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, uh, we're on an ongoing discussion about God's wrath in the Bible. And I, that's actually the title of the handout that anyone listening should have, God's Wrath in the Bible. And we are, I believe, on page five. Divine wrath, autonomous or metaphorical for consequences or international strife. What is, what, you know, let, let's do a, a review of what we already been because I, jumping in the middle isn't going to help if we don't. Um, we first tried to find definitive passages that define and describe God's wrath because the Bible is a big book written over several thousand years and at least 1700 years and um, it consequently the the language, as we've pointed out many times, reflects human usage, human uh, points of reference, and human definitions. And, and consequently, looking in a lexicon may not teach us the biblical definition of these terms. And so, to define God's wrath adequately, we need to do that. And we we looked at some passages that were very definitive, and from a canonical perspective. Uh, Genesis never mentions God's wrath at, at, never once. God is never angry in Genesis. Not with the flood, not with Sodom and Gomorrah. He is grieved in the flood, but not angry. And we took that as definitive, that this is God's preferred voice. The minor voice that you hear infrequently in Scripture, or less frequently in Scripture, as the major voice. And when we first hear about God's wrath, it's in Exodus 4.14, that this is the first canonical instance of God's anger. And we noted that what God does when he gets angry is give people what they want. He gives Moses, he gets angry at Moses uh, because Moses doesn't want to go to Egypt. And so he gives Moses what he wants. Moses wants God to send someone else. And so he sends Aaron, which is not a good thing. Aaron causes all kinds of problems for Moses and for God. But God gives Moses what he wants. So that is uh, the first canonical instance of God's anger, and we're letting that be our guide. And we noted all the places where God's wrath is depicted as giving people over to the consequences of their choice. So basically giving them what they've chosen. And even the instructive passages, many of them have that in the context so that we can see that wrath... God's wrath is giving people to the consequences of their choice or letting them have what they want. So 
Now we're on divine wrath as autonomous. That is not God's wrath necessarily, but just wrath. The text doesn't say it's God's wrath. It just says there's wrath. And it seems to be metaphorical for consequences or international strife. And I don't know that we'll spend a lot of time on this passage, but let's see where we go with it. Uh, so the first one is Leviticus 10.6. Okay, here it is. Uh, this is the, the terrible story of Nadab and Abihu who offered strange fire before the Lord and they died doing it. And verse 6 says, Moses then said to Aaron and his sons, Eliezer and Ithamar, don't dishevel your hair and don't rip your clothes into pieces or you will die and bring anger upon the whole community. It doesn't say divine anger. doesn't say God's anger. just says you will bring anger. And so what I'm suggesting here is that this is a metaphor for calamity. You'll bring consequences. You'll bring uh, bad results. And that is that is kind of encapsulated in the word anger. Could their death just lead to the dismay of everybody? It would lead to uh, if if they if they weep and wail over this death, as it was a custom in ancient times. Uh, it would mean that they were in sympathy with these men and and were against what God had done. And that would separate them even more from God. And the consequences would be disaster. Uh, the n- Numbers uh, 153. Let's go there next. There's it's, This is the chapter on the census of Israel. Censuses were taken in ancient times to determine the ability of a military power in a, in a group of people. And God tells Moses to take the census, but the Levites are left out of the census. And so this, this passage of verses 48 to 53 uh, is about the Levites being left out of that. The Verse 52, it gives a kind of concluding statement, verses 52 and 53. It says, the Israelites will camp each other in their own place under the banner of their own military unit. But the Levites will camp around the covenant dwelling so that God's anger will not strike the Israelite community. I believe the Hebrew literally says for that there may be no wrath on the congregation. It doesn't say God's in the Hebrew, my version. Um, what version do you have? The New King James Version. Yeah, New King James Version is probably is more literal and closer to the Hebrew. Uh, why don't you read it there in yours? But the Lev- Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimony, and there may be no wrath on the congregation of the children of Israel, and the Levites shall keep charge of the tabernacle of the testimony. Mm-hmm. So there you have it. No wrath. 
so it's it's like this word is a uh, almost an autonomous kind of word that has a it's, it's more of a rubric under which come all kinds of bad consequences and that it has has lost its connection to the divine it's no longer god's wrath but it it's more just wrath now some some people would say oh it's elliptical elliptical means that it's a shorthand way of saying God's wrath. You see, uh, some would say that, but there does seem to be this journey in, in the ancient Near East of shifting from divine anger to a more autonomous kind of function uh, that isn't perceived any longer as divine, divinely caused. Uh, it's more God is left. And, and then we have wrath, and, and wrath means bad things. Okay, uh, there's two more texts I'm going to skip over, but just to briefly mention. Uh, number 1711, for wrath has gone out from the Lord, the plague has begun. Uh, it's almost like it's autonomous going out from God. What does that mean? Does it mean God is directly doing it? Or does it mean God, wrath has gone out, God has left them to the consequences of their choice? I would suppose that many Israelites would read that as God's wrath coming out and, and doing something to them. Um, but I think there's room in the language for a different meaning. Uh, Numbers 18.5, so that wrath may never again come on the Israelites, is another example of that. Okay, Joshua 9.20. This is the treaty with the Gibeonites that the Israelites made. The, the story is that these uh, the Israelites were coming into Canaan and conquering nations and terrifying the people because God was clearly with them and uh, made them a success. And so the Gibeonites in fear pretended to be people from very far away uh, and they brought moldy bread to try to prove it and they deceived the Israelites into thinking that and the Israelites made a treaty with them that they wouldn't kill them. And in the ancient Near East, you make a treaty with someone or you make a covenant with someone, uh, you vow to someone, you cannot break that. You just, you cannot break your word. So, consequently, the... Uh, they're forced to honor their word. And 9.20 says, this is what we will do with them. We'll let them live so that wrath won't come down on us because of the solemn pledge we made to them. See, it was, it was believed in the ancient Near East uh, across the board, if you break your promise, if you break an oath, if you break a covenant, that you make with someone, you incur divine ple- displeasure. Uh, so wrath coming down would infer that it's God's wrath, and yet there's something about this almost automatic response involved, uh, an autonomous something that seems to be at work. Second Kings 3.27 is another interesting little passage. Israel is uh, fighting Moab. In fact, I think this is actually 
Uh, it says the kings had come to fight against them. Probably the king of Israel and the king of Judah had had gotten together. And they're trying to strike down the Moabites. It says, verse 25, Then the Israelites destroyed the Moabite cities. Each Israelite threw a stone on every piece of good land until it was covered. They stopped up every spring and cut down every good tree. And verse 26, When Moab's king saw that he was losing the battle... He took 700 soldiers with him, each with a sword in hand, to break through to Edom's king, but they failed. Then he took his oldest son, who was to succeed him as king, and he offered him on the wall as an entirely burned offering. As a result, my version really interprets this, wrath came upon Israel is what the Hebrew says. Uh, my version has, as a result, outrage, outrage was expressed by Israel, which is a very interpretive way. I think wrath came upon Israel is probably more accurate. So what does it mean, wrath came upon Israel? The text doesn't tell us. We don't know if they had a, suffered a plague. We, we don't know what happened. But there was this problem of offering a child sacrifice, basically, is what the king of Moab did. He offered a child sacrifice, and wrath came upon Israel. We don't know what the nature of that is. But it, it does seem to show this kind of autonomous, almost automatic response to doing something very um, severe. I mean, it's a severe act to do a child sacrifice. It's an ex- extreme act. It's something you do, uh, it's something ancient peoples did uh, to appease deity when they felt they were in a dire crisis. Child sacrifice is usually the result of a crisis. Yeah, go ahead, John. And this wrath came upon Israel because they had See, entered is, into is, a covenant? I, I think that the text is, is very quiet, silent on what that means because it's a, it's a puzzlement even to the people who, who recorded it. Uh, something happened. Uh, apparently, let's see if we can contextualize this a little bit. Moab was, King Mesha and Moab was probably a vassal of the king of Israel, who was Joram, Ahab's son. And as a, as a vassal, he would pay the king's, I'm, I'm reading in verse 4, he would pay the Israel's king uh, 100,000 lambs and the wool from 100,000 rams. But when Ahab died, Moab's king rebelled against Israel's king. So he wasn't paying this to Joram. He took the opportunity. And this often happened with vassal treaties in the ancient Near East. They would, as soon as a new king arose, they would stop paying tribute. So King Joram decides to, to attack Moab and, and um, punish him for his rebellion. It was, this was considered rebellion not just against the king of Israel but against his gods. That's how ancient Near Eastern minds thought of it. So he comes out against the king of Moab. This is the story. The Moabites heard how these kings had come to fight against them. And so they took their positions against the border. And they saw the water from a distance. God worked for them. And the Israelites took the Moabites on. And then there's this this weird thing that happens that the text doesn't tell us what it is they, they, they view it as God's wrath 
so they pulled back from Moab's king and returned to their own country. It was like God said, okay, if he's going to go that far to, uh, to execute his son on the wall, you guys have to stop. And he indicates that by something that happens that they attribute to divine anger. It's a very difficult story because we don't have enough enough details to tell us what this means. But I'm just using it as a to point out that anything bad happens, the ancient people saw as divine anger. That's their perspective. Okay, and it came to be just a kind of an automatic response. So instead of God's wrath fell upon Israel, just wrath. And the same thing of Second Chronicles 24:18 and Second Chronicles 32:25, Second uh, Chronicles 32:26. Therefore, wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem for their this guilt of theirs. Uh, again, they probably saw it as divine anger, but it's expressed by the writer as kind of an automatic response. Look at Isaiah 10:5. Doomed to Assyria, rod of my anger, and whose staff is whose hand is the staff of my fury? Did God send those who view God's anger as direct punishment from God? God gets angry; He punishes people directly. Those who see it that way believe that God raised up the Assyrians to oppress His people. He used them to be His instruments of punishment. The same people who teach that also teach that God uses Satan in the same way to punish other people. You know, the, the traditional view of hell, Satan is the one with the pitchfork making people stay in hell. Uh, that's the traditional widespread view of hell. So it's, it's understood that God directly raised up Assyria to punish Israel. That's the perception of the people. Is it the perception of inspiration? What often happens is you'll find passages. Well, let's look at it's in this passage. Uh, look down at verses 24 and 25. Um, I'm going to ask Tara, would you read uh, actually verses 20 to 25? In that day, the remnant of Israel, the survivors of Jacob, will no longer rely on him who struck them down, but they truly will rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. A remnant will return, a remnant of Jacob will return to the mighty God. Though your people be like the sand of the sea, Israel, only a remnant will return. Destruction has been decreed, overwhelming the righteous. The Lord, the Lord Almighty, will carry out the destruction decreed upon the whole land. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the Lord Almighty, says. My people who live in Zion, do not be afraid of the Assyrians, who beat you with a rod and lift up a club against you, as Egypt did. Very soon my anger against you will end, and my wrath will be directed to their destruction. Okay. I'm glad I had you read that, because your version, I think, is better than mine. I have, the end is announced, overflowing with justice. Yes, destruction has been announced. So that word decreed can just simply mean to announce something. Uh, and one's bias will determine which nuance is used. What this, what this passage says 
is that God uses or God raises up the Babylonians. They are his rod of anger to punish his people. And then at the end, he will punish Assyria. He will raise someone else up to punish Assyria. So if it's sort of like, okay, you whack my people. Oh, you whacked them too hard, whack. Uh, and, and oh, you whacked them too hard, so whack. Uh, what we're seeing here is playing out what happens under oppression. Oppression is self-destructive. Think about our modern times. And what happened in the case of Germany when they oppressed people? Did it make them the nation they anticipated being? No, it didn't. What about communism? Communism came to its own end. It it basically self-destructed in terms of its power internally without outside forces coming against it. So this is the story of how nations rise up against nations and use oppression, and that oppression leads to self-destruction of that nation. The nation ends at the hands usually of another nation that then itself destructs because it uses power against that nation. And and in the language, in the language used in the Bible, these are God's instruments. You see, of His anger. He simply allows it to happen and he can't protect his people if they turn their backs on him. So, of course, they're going to suffer oppression at the hands of the Assyrians because they haven't trusted in God to protect them. Look at uh, Isaiah 26:20. Oh, where shall we go? start? Actually, 20. Let's, let's start with verse 20. Go, my people, enter your rooms and shut the doors behind you. Take cover for a a little while while the fury will be over. You notice it's it's this autonomous thing. It's the fury. The fury is what is going to happen. It really is that wrath in some instances in the Bible seems to personify terrible things. And it, it seems to be used kind of as a metaphor for those things. Look at Ezekiel twenty three twenty five, and why don't you read it? Okay, start with verse twenty two, and read through verse twenty five. Therefore, O thus says the Lord God: Behold, I will stir up your lovers against you, from whom you have alienated yourself, and I will bring them against you from every side. The Babylonians, all the Chaldeans, Pekod, Shoa, Koa, all the Assyrians with them, all of them desirable young men, governors and rulers, captains and men of renown, all of them riding on horses. And they shall come against you with chariots, wagons, and war horses, with a horde of people. They shall array against you buckler, shield, and helmet all around, I will delegate judgment to them, and they shall judge you according to their judgments. I will set my jealousy against you, and they shall deal furiously with you. They shall remove your nose and your ears, and your remnant shall fall by the sword. They shall take your sons and your daughters, and your remnant shall be devoured by fire. Okay, you notice he says, I will hand, I will let them be the ones to judge you. 
Uh, my version has, this is verse 25, I will direct, I'm sorry, I will, verse 24, I will hand your punishment over to them. In other words, he's giving them over to them. It's, it's this wrath giving people up again uh, to the consequences of their choice. Daniel 8 is a very interesting passage. And start with verse 19. I'm sorry, Dan, yeah, Daniel 8, 19. Oh, the time of doom. Uh, what does your version have? Yeah, for you, what does your version have? Since you have the New King James. Uh, so, Daniel eight nineteen, And he said, Look, I am making known to you what shall happen in the later time of the indignation. For all the appointed time, the end shall be. The time of indignation? Yes. Says okay, so the time of wrath. Did you have a different version, Tara? Uh-huh, time of wrath. Uh, mine has the time of doom. So wrath has this connotation of doom. Uh, a time when it seems that God is not doing anything to protect people. Okay. And then 11, Daniel 11, 36. The king will do whatever he wants. He will exalt himself, making himself greater than any god. He will say unbelievable things against the god of gods. He will succeed until the what is completed. I have doom. What do you have? Wrath. Wrath. Till the wrath is completed, because what is decreed must take place. That word decreed could probably mean announce. You can take you can see you can take these passages two ways. You can t- read them through the lens of the ancient Near East and believe that God is decreeing, "I'm angry and this is what has to take place, and I'm going to make sure it happens, and I'm going to do it to you directly using uh, these outside forces." Or you can see it as a time of intense trouble in which the people perceive it as God's anger. Or perceive it as wrath. And wrath really seems to be used here as in the sense of doom. So, Gene, would this be a situation where people attribute sometimes the things of God to Satan and the things of Satan to God? By perceiving something that God would have take place as a natural consequence, as a judgment, mm-hmm. and sympathizing with it, and if they sympathize with something that's true, and if they sympathize with a harsh judgment that has come upon somebody as a natural consequence for not doing the right thing, as um, a pitiful thing that took that happened to them, then they would be sympathizing more for more with on the side of the enemy with of God. That works for, for Nadab and Abihu. I'm not, and, and Aaron, not grieving, but what I, what I see happening here is God in the Old Testament did not correct the misconceptions about himself. He did not correct the misconceptions about himself. I mean, the, the Old Testament is not an attempt to set forth the truth about God over against the popular views of him. 
So Israel holds a picture of God that is very similar to how the Babylonians, the Assyrians, uh, probably the Canaanites saw deity. They saw deity as wrathful, as executing anger, as, as doing all these things directly in his anger. God doesn't correct that picture in terms of language. So the language reflects that perception. What I maintain is in the reading the Old Testament, we cannot let language be the last and final word on how we define words. In other words, we can't just consult a lexicon uh, that reflects the human perceptions of things and read into those words uh, the human perceptions. Inspiration allows us to take the whole Bible and use it to interpret any part of it. But but certainly there are cases where people do correctly perceive it, though, right? Don't and always those, take And those places, the, the plain places where is, there is a definitive statement made about wrath, in a canonical setting, that is to be used to interpret all the other passages that have the more human uh, kinds of language attached to them. Is this going to be a case where people don't fully understand as at the events that are taking place in their own time that it's written, oh, absolutely. It, it's written it, more for it, us in our time to look back well, on all these things? Let, let's put it this way. Uh, it's written for their time, and they're going to see it somewhat they're going to see it the way everybody sees it. God doesn't correct that. It's in the farther we go and we get to Jesus. Jesus is definitive in terms of how he portrays the Father. He is the definitive revelation of the Father. The, the Old Testament wasn't given to be definitive in terms of a revelation of God. It was given to get people from point A to point B while they're going down, God is trying to pull them back up. And when you're trying to do that, you have to work very slowly and within their constructs and, and speak their language or that you lose them. And so, so God is, through the Old Testament, is trying to bring people to a point where he can give a definitive revelation of his character. So, that's what I see happening. We need both Old and New Testaments. And there are many breakthroughs in the Old Testament itself. You have the start of, of Genesis, the high point, God is never angry. And then you have the first definition where God meets, uh, where God gives Moses what he wants. And then it begins to slide. And, and, and even then, most of the time, wrath, uh, through the book of Judges, Wrath is natural consequence, God giving people over to the consequences of their choice. But once you have the monarchy, it really goes down. Because, and this is, this is one of the things I'm, I'm going to be coming to towards the end, but I'll, I'll give a little piece of it here. Wrath, the, the concept of divine anger is intimately tied together with angry kings. If the, a big man on the throne, gets angry, and that means your demise. How much more will the big man in the heavens get angry, and that would be your demise? 
Um, and there's a direct correlation with that. So um, anyway, uh, let's go to one more text. I think I'm, and that is Psalm 80, Psalm 85, 4. Uh, Tara, would you like to read that, please? It's actually verse 3. It says, You set aside all your wrath and turned from your fierce anger. Okay. Restore us again, God our Savior, and put away your displeasure towards us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger through all generations? Will you not revive us again that you, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your unfailing love, Lord, and grant us your salvation. And what I'm suggesting with these passages that we're looking at today, and this is a good example, we're suffering, so you're angry. Teeth turn away, you're angry. In other words, stop our suffering. You, you see how, how that works? It's really how they perceive it. And, and I have a note here in uh, page 6. Throughout the ancient Near East, especially Semitic cultures such as the Babylonians, the Syrians, Ugaritians, people, Amari, Syrians, and Amorites, etc., calamitous events were viewed as manifestations of divine anger so that the term anger itself could refer to these events. In a similar way, Americans refer to calamities as acts of God in insurance terms. We do the same thing. We call them acts of God. But do we really mean that they're acts of God? I mean, some of us do. But the term itself does not necessarily mean that. And so I, I see this as a parallel kind of usage of divine anger. Well, um, uh, that we got through that section. That, this is one of the more difficult sections to understand. And next time we will deal with all the statements about human anger and see if uh, human anger is to, something to be desired. And if human anger isn't something to be desired, what about God's anger? Uh, So that's our question for next time. And with that, we will close. Let's have prayer. Father, we ask that as we continue this study, that you will enlighten our minds and help us to understand more fully how to interpret the scriptures, how to see what your wrath really is. Thank you for revealing yourself to us in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Name, amen. Name, amen. Name, amen.